in that way. It was, it's good to have the Lord's Supper. It's been about 54 weeks since we were able to have the Lord's Supper on a Sunday morning. We were, we've moved it to the evening services over the past year, um, and, um, but it's good to have it back. Our, our desire, our plan, Lord willing, would be to once again um, have the Lord's Supper on a monthly basis during the morning service. And so, uh, so we've... we've uh, jumped back into that routine as of this morning. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11 and then finishing the chapter. These are God's words for us this morning, and here's what God says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is in the flesh uh, by hands, remember that you uh, were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth um, of Israel, and strangers to the uh, covenants of promise, having no hope uh, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord." In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word, for there's no word that opens up to us the glories and the beauties and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, that we would see wonderful things here in this place portion of your word that we've just read. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to believe. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The heart of the Christian faith is Christ. 
what God has done in Christ by his spirit. And the essence of what God has done in Christ by his spirit is demonstrated at the cross. So we are taking four weeks. We started last week. We'll hit it this morning and then two weeks after that, Lord willing, to consider four facets of the work of Christ on the cross. We're, we're considering what it looks like, what it consists of to root our lives in the death of Christ. Last week, we looked at how the cross rescues us. We were dead in our sins, and yet we were made alive together in Christ. And now this morning, I want us to consider something of how the cross reconciles us. Now, in particular, what I mean by that, certainly the cross reconciles sinful humanity uh, with holy God, but as we have considered already in the reading this morning, you've noticed that, that the primary focus, while not excluding the vertical reconciliation we have with God, the, the thrust of these verses are really describing something of the horizontal reconciliation, how God makes one new people in Christ Jesus. Two things I want us to think about from our passage this morning. First, I want us to think about the, the what. Uh, what is the outcome of Christ's work of reconciliation? And then, then we'll look a little bit at the how. What is the operation? How does the, how does the cross operationally work to bring reconciliation uh, to, to us? First of all, the what. And uh, to get a glimpse of that, kind of a, a then and then now shot, we will look at verses 11 and 12, and then verses 18 through 22. 11 and 12 kind of show us uh, what it used to be like, and then 18 to 22 counterbalance that and show us what it now is in Christ Jesus. He says there, and again, this is kind of an odd or foreign language maybe to many of us. Um, we, we just don't think much about this being that big of a deal in our own day and age. Uh, and, and yet, uh, in, in Paul's day and age, um, there was no greater difference. There was no greater distinction. There was no greater concept of, of, of separation than between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews were, were, were the children of Abraham the, through the line of, uh, of, of, of Isaac, through the line of Jacob, and, and, and then through the 12 tribes of Israel. They, they were, in this passage, the circumcision. They were the ones who were religiously, culturally, uh, ethnically, uh, they were Jewish. And the other group in this was the the uncircumcision listed there in, in verse uh, 11. Uh, those were the Gentiles. And who were the Gentiles? Everybody who wasn't Jewish. But that's just how very simplistic or simple uh, the, the Old Testament world was sliced up. There were, there were the Jewish people and there was the not Jewish people. Every, everybody else, if you would. Everyone else was of a different religious, cultural and ethnical uh, people group. I, I say I'm, I'm particularly picking the word ethnic rather than the word race. Uh, 
Um, because as, as least what comes to my mind, I, I, I'm not trying to change the, whole, the way the whole world labels something. <laughs> I'm, I'm up against a big fight. But race connotes biological difference. <laughs> and, and there's really no significant biological difference in, difference in the different ethnic groups around the world. Um, there, there's no big um, biological difference between the Jewish people and the Gentile peoples. I mean, in a, in a sense, we, we, we all stem from, uh, from Noah and his family. We all stem from Adam and his family. There is, there is one human race of people. Now, there's different religious and cultural and ethnic distinctions uh, among people. And, and, and I think that's what's going on. And not, and not to minimize those things. Those are robust, but those are more sociologically oriented rather than biologically oriented. There was no greater distinction between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. Not because the Jewish people were innately superior in any way. Not because they had a biological edge about them, if you would. No, the, the Jewish people were actually of the, of the same piece of cloth that everyone else, biologically, was. Every, every other people group was a, a part of. The, 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 we all have a common uh, racial um, uh, linkage if we read our scriptures carefully. But what Israel had going for it through the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham and the patriarchs. What Israel had going for them is that they were chosen and loved by God. That's what they had going for them. Loved not because they were special, but special because they were loved. And yet, and yet even in that, Israel corrupted, perverted this, this whole notion, they were to be God's special people so that they would be a kingdom of priests to the entire world, that they would show the entire world the blessed state of their unique status so that they would become a light and a witness to the nations. But Israel corrupted that and used their standing not as a way to be a light and a witness to the nations, but to hunker down in isolation and to become nationalistic in their pride. So he begins to say here that remember, and he's speaking primarily to the Gentile group here, in verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from this commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without Christ and without God in the world. That was the then. And then if you look over at beginning in verse 18 is the now. Now, this is what Christ has done. He's taking a people who were as separated as as, as you could conceive of culturally and ethnically and religiously. And he has now brought the, those peoples together. Verse 18, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Do you see the counterbalance? 
Remember that at one time you were alienated, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. You're no longer in Christ Jesus, uh, aliens and strangers, he's saying. For we, verse 18, for we through uh, him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In other words, one spirit to the one Father, if you would. So then we are no longer uh, strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure... Do you see the imagery he's painting here? The, the two groups of people, the Jews and the non-Jews, the Jews and the Gentiles, are, are no longer simply two different religious, cultural, and ethnic bodies. They, they are now being brought together to, to comprise one building, one house in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also uh, you are being built together into a dwelling place uh, for God by His Spirit. So no longer aliens, no longer strangers, now fellow citizens with the saints, now members of the same household. Now, once we were separated from Christ, once we had no hope and without God in the world, but, but now we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We are now a, 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 a one big structure, metaphorically speaking, being joined together to, to, to grow into a, a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by His Spirit to stir in and to live among. That's what we are to be now, a reconciled people because of the Lord Jesus Christ. The the most powerful and the most profound witness that the church is to have before the world is the unity that the church will practically display before the world in Christ Jesus. That, that, that even the way Jesus framed it from a slightly different variation in John 13, where he says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. We, we no longer see each other as aliens or strangers. We, we, we now see ourselves as fellow citizens, members of the same household, dwelt by the same spirit, brought together by the same Lord, access to the same Father. And, and, and the world is to, is to be able to look at us and say, Wow, what explains that? What has tore down the, the, the rank tribalism among that cluster of people that gather together? What, what is it that explains that? Look at what Jesus has done. Look at what Jesus is building. So that's something of the what. The what consists of we are now one new people. Then the middle verses explore something of the how. How did this reconciliation occur? 
Well, this is why we're spending these four weeks on the cross. I don't mean to be simplistic, but, but any problem in this world that you and I face, any problem that you throw at me and say, hey, Joe, but what about this? Any problem of any great profound significance is, in fact, in one way, shape, form, or another met and resolved at the cross. I, I, I don't know if you've paid attention, but we don't live in a harmonious world. I, I don't know if you've been uh, watching the news every now and again, but, but you certainly see uh, um, uh, uh, what's seemingly flourishing is the rise of tribalism. And on the one hand, it's always been there. As long as there's been humanity, I mean, the very first two brothers got into a ruckus and one killed the other. I mean, it's been hard to get along with people from the get-go. And yet it seems more common today, and in part just because we have more vehicles, we have more media opportunities to promote and to display the, the tribal fragmentation of the world and we think, well, this, all this fragmentation is just highly complex, and we need some complex um, uh, solutions to, to bring about a harmonious world. Uh, listen, what, was, what happened at the cross not only reconciles sinful man with holy God, but in reconciling sinful man with holy God, everyone who is reconciled to God now has the basis of being reconciled with each other. And that's what the middle verses explain to us. We saw what it was before, but in verse 19, but now. But say, but but how? How does reconciliation occur? But how? But now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, in other words, hey, you Gentiles, uh, who once were aliens and strangers having no hope, cut off from the promises of God, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And then notice what he says in verse 14, and you're going to get the hint that, that he's trying to make a big fuss out of this because he mentions it in verse 14, he mentions it in verse 15, and he mentions it twice in verse 17, and that is the term peace. For he himself is our peace. Or in verse 16, and, and he might reconcile, uh, um, or, or verse 15, and by abolishing the, the, the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create himself in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And then verse 17, and he came and pre- peached, preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, peace is, is not simply the absence of conflict. I mean, that, that would be uh, a term that, I don't know where it originated from, but it became famous in the latter part of the Cold War, the word detente. And that was when the Cold War and um, the Western nations just, uh, look, we're not really going to get along with each other, but let's agree to not, like, out-nuke each other. So there was just a there was an, a, a, just kind of a calming of hostilities, kind of subsiding them, but but not true peace. 
But what Christ brings is not just a detente between tribes and people groups. He doesn't just say, now, quit being so uh, mean to each other and be nice for a little bit. Uh, No, he actually brings peace, which is a a positive term, not just a cessation of a a negative experience. He brings peace. He brings a a, a happiness and a love and a joy and a a flourishing to people who are now uh, brought together and no longer as aliens and strangers. He's made us both one new man. He says there he's done this by, and this is kind of an odd phrase to us again. He's done this by, by in his flesh, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. See, it says that in the latter part of verse 14. Broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. What is the dividing wall of hostility? Well, the next verse alludes to it, I think. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the chief things that created a religious, cultural, and ethnic divide between the Jews and the rest of the world was the old covenant that that God gave uh, to Moses. And what this verse passage is telling us that, that functionally that was, in essence, the wall of hostility, the old covenant stipulations. Now, again, this was because, in essence, Israel perverted uh, their understanding of these Old Testament stipulations. What should have been uh, Israel practicing the law of God as a witness to the nations concerning the goodness of God and the kindness of God in giving these instructions so that his people would experience the blessedness of life, uh, 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 thus inviting all nations to come and come and join us in the practice of these good laws of God, that, that we would experience truly the good life and the blessed hand of God. Instead, instead they became uh, uh, the stipulations that caused a segregation, a separation, even if you would, a smacking air of superiority. What our scripture is telling us is due in part because of Israel's corruption and perversion of the of of, of those stipulations. God has accomplished something in his son that has tore down those stipulations creating that hostility and creating one new man. One new man, I would add, who, who, who still lives under the law of God, but here in the new covenant that's expressed as the law of Christ. So God has created by His Son, through the shed blood of His Son, through the work of the cross, He has created one new man in place of two, so making peace that He might reconcile both of us, both of us to God. Thus, the implication is that we are therefore reconciled to each other. What does that look like? What does that look like for us to make a big fuss about the cross as the basis of our union together as members of the same household? 
as, as, as fellow citizens, as no longer people who would exist in our tribal distinctivenesses of, of, of being aliens and, and separated from each other. But what does it look like? How shall we live on this day, this week, as being people who are no longer aliens and strangers? Well, I think if you'll let me dip over a couple of chapters later in the book of Ephesians, when you get to chapter 4 of Ephesians, he begins to draw some of the practical implications, some of the so what's of what God has done in Christ to not only bring us from death to life, but to bring us from being alienated and strangers to being one new man. And notice what he says beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. The first three verses is what I'll read. He says, I therefore, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy um, of the calling to which you have been called. Then notice verse 2, with all humility... And gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's making a big fuss out of that word. So say, on the one hand, there is something robust and, and very foundational that God has done in Christ to create two peoples and to be in one new people. And yet there are practical outworkings of how we would live in, 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 in a way that would maintain the unity that Christ has purchased and secured and created for his people. And the first, the only one I want to get to this morning is the first thing he's mentioned there in verse 2. In order for us to maintain the, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace... You and I must learn to practice humility. We could go further, but we ain't got time. In other words, a a, a root cause of our tribalisms in our culture today, a root cause of our tribalism is our tribal pride. We, we take and, and elevate some aspect of our identity. Our, our, maybe it's our ethnicity. Maybe it's our gender. Maybe it's our nationality. Maybe it's our skin color. And we take those identifiable tags and we elevate them to being the defining identity of our lives. And we attach the word pride to those tribal identities. You see, all around us, we are being encouraged to promote our tribal identities. The gospel is in conflict with such promotions. The gospel is the antithesis and really the obliteration of, of, of such uh, identity markers. Oh, sure, you and I are still the ethnicity that we are. We're still the gender that we are. We're still the nationality that we are. We still have the same hair color, although mine is changing. It's changed, rather. But when we begin to elevate those identity markers 
and attach our boasting to those identity markers. We are not walking in humility. And if we're not walking in humility, we are not, we are not eagerly maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, let him who boasts... You, you guys want to boast about something? It's not about your ethnicity. It's not about your nationality. It's not about your skin color. It's not about your gender. It's not about your hair type. Let him who boasts... Boast only in the Lord. In other words, that that identity marker, being in Christ, that, that overrides and dismantles every other lesser identity marker. It doesn't obliterate them completely, but it just dethrones them as being the chief identity marker. Now the cross, now the shed blood of Christ, now the Lord Jesus Christ is now our chief identity marker. And of all the pride we want to cultivate in our in our culture today and create a new tribe out of that pride promotion, let's promote pride in the cross that takes a wide species of peoples and makes them into one new people. Whatever is the hostilities uh, that segment and separate uh, and, 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 and create walls between uh, cultural and ethnic divisions, they can still be obliterated by the cross, and you and I can still practice them through a sense of humility. I ain't going to boast in my nationality. I ain't going to boast in my ethnicity. I'm not going to boast in my skin color. I'm not going to boast in my gender. I'm not going to boast in any other sort of uh, identity marker that, that certainly reflects some aspect of my being. No, uh, we will be, we must be, if we will be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, we will Boast in the cross of Christ. In fact, in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 31, in its context, he actually reminds them that those who were told that you should boast only in the cross actually is saying to them, because you know what? You ain't got much else to boast about. And I'm not being a smarty pants. And I'm not, again, I'm not, I'm, not trying to, I'm, I'm not trying to speak ill of different ethnicities or different genders or different skin colors or different nationalities or, or any of that. But what I'm saying is that Paul reminds us that let our boast be in the Lord Jesus Christ because it's the Lord who, it said, Paul says there, he's called the foolish. He's called the, the weak. He's called the lowly to himself. In essence, what he's saying is, hey, you big boaster there in your prideful identity marker, what you got to boast about? Jesus has come. Jesus has lived a perfect life. 
Jesus has died as a perfect sacrifice. Jesus has spilled his blood for us and for our salvation, not just to bring us to God. Oh, yes, he's done that. But to bring us to God, a people of of various and sundry tribal units that formerly were hostile and alien, not just to God, but to each other. Correct, make sure you don't misunderstand something. I'm not saying that you should be feel a shame over whatever it is, these other ideas. If you're a boy, don't be don't 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 be feel guilty because you're a boy. If you're a girl, don't feel bad about being a girl. If if you're black, don't feel bad about being black. If you're white, don't feel bad about being white. If you're American, don't feel bad about being American. If you're from South Africa, don't feel bad about being from South Africa. Uh, That's fine. Those are what they are. I'm not saying we should feel ashamed and reject those. I'm just saying that, that for a follower of Christ, the first step in us maintaining the unity that Jesus has purchased is that we would walk in humility. That we would throw off and kick to the side anything that we would want to take pride in that is native to us. Because we're too busy trying to promote pride in what Jesus and his cross has accomplished for people like us. We're to be a one boasting kind of people. And once we get done exhausting and exploring all there is to boast about Jesus and his cross, well, then if we've got some spare time, we'll find something else to boast about. You see, we will divide ourselves even as the people of God if we let something other than the cross define us ultimately. And, and, the, and, the, and the church, of course, the gospel reminds us of this. We're not making much of ourselves here. The, the church has failed in this testimony in multiple ways. One thing I read this past week that just, like, just pushed me over is that you know, many of you are familiar that in the early church, uh, in the first century, second century, Christians were under tremendous persecution because of the Roman Empire. Many Christians were literally killed uh, by the Roman government and the Roman authorities. But do you realize, I didn't realize this until this week, but the, the, the amount of Christians that were killed by the Roman authorities in the first and second century, it, it, it pales in comparison to the number of Christians killed by fellow Christians during the Protestant Reformation. Why? Because they made their denominational distinctive that which they boasted in rather than in the cross of Christ. I say that because talking about someone that would have a ship on his shoulder and the, and the number one recipients of such death sentences were the Anabaptists for whom we have a kindred family tree as Baptists. And then since Anabaptists were able to unite the Catholics and the Protestants in their joint effort to kill Anabaptists. See, how is that promoting the, the gospel bringing together one new people? And I just, 
use that as an illustration. We could go on and on and on of other illustrations about how when Christians don't operate with humility first and foremost, then we take away the beauty and the power of the cross to take two kinds of people and to bring them together as one new people. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done for people like us in his life, in his death, whom you've raised from the dead. And so, Father, we we want to live in what Christ has secured for us, and we want to live in that by intentionally practicing humility. Help us, Father. Give us the grace. Give us the spirit that we would display the presence of God within the boundaries of this even local church by how we would be humbled in our boast of the cross of Christ. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.